This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Tessa Dare discusses her new novel, The Duchess Deal. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal explains how an author tried to game the bestseller lists. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Joining me is PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Very nice to have you here, as always. I love that we get these little chats whenever Mark is out of town. Uh, so tell us what's happening on the hardcover nonfiction bestseller list in these last, last slow weeks of summer. Yes, very slow is the operative word or words. Um, we have a few new books this week, though. Uh, to me, the most interesting is the new one by Carl uh, Ove Nausgar, mm-hmm. who is known for his series of five, I believe, uh, autobiographical novels, uh, all going by the name My Struggle. He has moved into true nonfiction now with the number 25 book on the list, Autumn. And this is the first in a proposed series of four seasonally titled books, mm-hmm. all autobiographies. As I said, this one, uh, in this one, he is writing to his unborn daughter. Our review said that Nausgaard revels in everyday items such as tin cans and rubber boots. Uh, so I guess he's got an eye for the minutiae. Uh, his perfect deconstruction of an old-fashioned landline telephone, we said, is a joy. Uh, so an overall positive review for Nausgaard and about uh, 2,400 print copies sold. So Very nice. Uh, very nice. Then we have a couple of other books debuting higher up at number six by Dale Bredesen. We have The End of Alzheimer's, which, as you might guess, is a medical book, Um Dr. Bresden is uh, an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. And in this book, uh, we don't have a review of it, but according to the publisher, he says that Alzheimer's disease is not one condition as it is currently treated, but three. And his book outlines 36 metabolic factors that can trigger downsizing in the brain, uh, downsizing being in quotes. Uh, he has a new protocol that shows how to rebalance those factors using lifestyle modifications like taking B12, eliminating gluten, or improving oral hygiene. Hmm. So uh, pretty interesting stuff and of interest to a lot of people, I would imagine. I've, I've heard of connections between oral bacteria and heart attacks, but I hadn't heard of this uh, connection with any kind of brain issues. That's very interesting. Yeah, it is. And all the more reason to keep flossing. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, then a couple notches below at number eight is a book called How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, which is not something you would want to let your interns get their hands on. Uh, this is by Clay Scroggins, who is the lead pastor of North Point Community Church. We don't have a review of this one either, but the publisher says that this book uh, exposes one of the greatest myths of leadership, which is that you must be in charge in order to lead. Hmm. Uh, so he uh, is apparently counteracting that, uh, the subtitle, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. His senior pastor wrote the foreword, uh, Andy Stanley, who he says is one of the greatest leaders on the planet. Presumably he is in charge, so I'm not really sure how this all fits <laughs> in, but that's it for the new books on nonfiction. Well, there's not a lot happening in fiction either, though we do have a new number one, which is Why is for Yesterday by Sue Grafton. Uh, uh, sold 51,000 units out of the gate, which is pretty mm-hmm. impressive, uh, but not really surprising. I remember in childhood reading some like spoof New York Times bestseller list uh, for an April Fool's Day issue um, that it was was the bestsellers of the future. And every every house was a merger of six different houses. 
And um, the Grafton bestseller on that was uh, X's for xylophones that fall out of the window <laughs> onto your head, killing you. So, so that was uh, like a Grafton gory mashup, I guess. Some, something like that. But everyone was sort of trying to figure out what she was going to do as she got to these very obscure letters at the end of the alphabet. Yeah. And for X, she just said X. She did. That was in 2015. And now Y is for yesterday, which could mean any number of things. Our review says this is a gripping novel that opens with a theft in 1979, and a misfit steals a test to help her best friend get through an elite private high school in Santa Teresa, California. Ten years later, uh, the consequences begin playing out uh, among them and their peers. And uh, we say that Grafton once again proves herself a superb storyteller. So uh, really impressive that she's kept the series going for all these years uh, doing so well. Yeah, I believe it started in 82. Something like that. Something like that. She's been writing these books a long time. It's a large alphabet. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Uh, And number 10 is Sulphur Springs by William Kent Kruger. Uh, We say that this is a moving and suspenseful 16th outing for former sheriff Cork O'Connor, the tragedy-plagued hero of Kruger's series. And uh, in this case... Yeah, he's he's dealing with violence that comes very close to home. He's with his second wife one night when she gets a disturbing voicemail from her son, uh, who they thought had kicked his drug habit, but might still be in with some shady characters. And uh, as they search for the the young man who's gone missing, um, Cork begins to wonder whether his wife is hiding something from him. We say, as usual, Kruger does a fine job of combining distinctive characters with a satisfying plot. And uh, just uh, below that at number 15, Map of the Heart by Susan Wiggs. Uh, Wiggs writes uh, lovely women's fiction um, very consistently on the bestseller list. And here we say she bridges eras of history and the depths of the human heart in this emotional story of a family shaped by tragedies both near and distant. And uh, in in this case, it's uh, a family that uh, unexpectedly travels to France from America and uncovers 70-year-old mysteries regarding the previous generation. We say in this tribute to heroes long gone, Wiggs effectively unveils the humanity hidden within history books, showing that love can span generations and bring hope to those left behind. And number 21 is The Saboteur by Andrew Gross. Uh, we said this is just a pretty average World War II thriller. Uh, it draws on the true story of an efforts of a small team of Norwegian patriots to halt the Nazi program to build an atomic bomb. Unfortunately, uh, despite that very exciting sounding premise, uh, our review says that the book's first half is sluggish and the second half also contains long periods of relative inactivity. They're basically just preparing for the mission, waiting for the right time to go in. And they spend a lot of time sitting around, which sounds very realistic, but maybe not the material for a top-notch thriller. We right. say, nonetheless, history buffs may appreciate the skill with which Gross combines fact and fiction. And finally, down at number 24 is Charlatans by Robin Cook. We say it's a suspenseful medical thriller. Um, Cook is likewise a perennial bestseller. And uh, in this case, the protagonist is a doctor who's now the chief resident at Boston Memorial, a preeminent teaching hospital. But uh, the one cloud on the horizon was the recent death during surgery of a popular hospital employee. And uh, the, the prima donna surgeon who was performing the surgery uh, was conducting other operations at the same time, which uh, is, <laughs> is a practice that does happen, uh, but obviously it comes under a lot of scrutiny yes. when someone dies on the table. And we say that most readers will be a step ahead of the sometimes naive Noah, but everyone will be rooting for this sympathetic character. And that's what we've got on the hardcover list, just a handful of thrillers and a, a little bit of uh, sort of warm-hearted women's fiction to round out the summer. Yeah, sounds appropriate for leading up to Labor Day. That's right. It, it'll be interesting to see how things shift as we get into the big September and October books. I think uh, a lot a lot is going to happen this fall. Definitely. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Tessa Dare tells us about class, disability, and romance in Regency England. We'll be right back. I'm Vanessa Panfield, the author of The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Tessa Dare on the line. Her new book is The Duchess Deal. 
Tessa, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be speaking with you today. So this book starts a new Regency England romance series for you. Uh, what's the theme of the series? The theme of the series is called Girl Meets Duke, but it's really the theme is more about female friendship. There's four friends who all live in the same square in London, and they're all a little different from the usual Regency heroine, which is what I usually write. I like to write different sorts of heroines. And they come from different walks of life, and uh, they all, uh, each of them is going to fall in love as well, but they uh, also have their own ways to grow and paths to find. So um, I'm really excited about it. What led you to focus on friendship, particularly? That I mean, that's a theme that shows up in some romances, but usually with sort of the sidekick pushing the heroine into the relationship and so forth. Uh, it sounds like this goes beyond that. Yes, I think so. They they have different qualities and kind of together, uh, they're sort of Regency Voltron. They put those qualities together and become something bigger than the sum of their parts, I think. And I think we'll get to see that more as, uh, and I'll get to play with that more as the series evolves in this first book they just sort of meet. But, uh, and then, you know, there are a lot of series that focus on male friendships. But uh, there are not so many that focus on females. So to me, that's an important part of most uh, women's lives. And most women, when they're falling in love, will be talking to their friends. And and so I I really am excited to, to focus on that. So tell us about the girl and the Duke in this first installment, Emma Gladstone and the Duke of Ashbury. Well, Emma is a seamstress. She is technically the daughter of a gentleman, so she comes from the gentry class, but she was estranged from her father and ended up in London as a seamstress. And the Duke came back from Waterloo with horrific injuries that were due to a faulty rocket, basically. And so he's uh, injured and burned on one side of his body. It took him a long time to recover, and the fiance that he had left behind breaks up with him after seeing the extent of his injuries and what that's going to mean uh, for a life together. And so here he is in London. He has lost a lot of his friends. He's lost his fiance. He's lost a great deal of his health uh, and struggled to come back from that. And however, he still needs a wife because it's his duty to produce an heir. And so he's just come to London to find a wife, anybody who meets his qualifications of being, you know, available from somewhat reasonably good background. And uh, and Emma, coincidentally, walks into his study. She had sewn the wedding gown for his previous fiancé. And she never got paid for it because they broke it off. And so she walks into his office wearing the gown just to grab his attention <laughs> and says, listen, I my rent is due and my pantry is getting low and I need to be paid. So here's this gown and here's how hard I worked on it because look at all these beads and whatnot. And can you please pay me what I'm owed? And the Duke is is here's Ash. He sees this woman come into his office. She's a gentlewoman by birth and she's there and she's desperate and she's single. And so he thinks, oh, here she is. I will just offer to marry her. And so they have a marriage of convenience in the beginning that, of course, turns into more. So in many romances, the wedding happens at the end, and it's this grand romantic culmination of everything that's come before. But here you're having the wedding in the beginning, and it's just signing a bunch of contracts. And, and Emma has to like badger the Duke into even giving her something like a ceremonial kiss. So how do you use this very unromantic wedding to kind of set reader expectations about the characters and the story? Well... In Regency Romance, I think the marriage of convenience is a, it's a trope that has been used before and, and one that most readers are familiar with. And they know that this 
unromantic wedding is going to result in a loving relationship in the end. And it's just a matter of how they get there. And you're right. These are two very, very stubborn people in their ways. You know, uh, Ash is very determined to remain alone and have no uh, romantic attachment in this marriage. And Emma feels the opposite. She She at least wants it's not a deep romance. She wants respect and she wants to be treated as a partner. And so she won't let him hide. And she attempts to draw him out in ways that he doesn't want to be challenged. Uh, and so they have their little tug of wills and, or their great tug of wills. If, if, uh, I don't think it's little, <laughs> they're both pretty determined, but of course Emma wins because this is a romance novel. So we've talked a little bit about Ash's wartime experiences, his injuries, his scars. Uh, Emma also has her own very difficult, unhappy background. You mentioned she's estranged from her father. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Emma is the daughter of a vicar, which is the English uh, equivalent of a village pastor, preacher, minister. Um, so obviously she grew up with some fairly... Uh, rigid expectations and being in the public eye a little bit. That's something that I could identify with because I personally am a preacher's kid, uh, which is abbreviated PK among the little club of us. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I knew what that's like to grow up with people looking at you and expecting you to behave in a certain way. And she has a teen romance, as so many teenagers do, and she ends up uh, consummating that relationship with her boyfriend, and they get caught, and it's great disaster for her father's very proud. He doesn't want uh, to be known what that he failed in some way to bring his daughter up in a proper way, and he just basically kicks her out of the house. And she's forced to fend from her fend for herself from that time on, and that, of course, is something my father would have never done. He was a much more understanding and loving and supportive father than Emma's father is. But that's a that's where she's coming from. And ever since then, she's been fending for herself. She has the talent of working with. Uh, her needle stitching and making gowns. And so she becomes more and more confident in that and finds a job making uh, dresses for wealthy women. And that's where she is when the book begins. So I, I noticed your dedication. Um, you, you mentioned that, that this sort of both is and is not based on your own personal experiences. What was it like writing something that personal? Um. You know, I think in all of my books, there's something fairly personal in them. It's just that this was the the element of my life that I was drawing on for this book. Um, I kind of discovered at a certain point in my career that the more open I was and the more genuine I was about my own insecurities and more I was willing to put them into my fiction... Uh, the more well-received they were. And I guess it probably, the characters come to life a little bit more when they are intensely personal. And that's a little bit scary as an author, but it's also really rewarding when readers will write or say to you that they identify as well. One of my books is dedicated to all the girls who walk and read at the same time. Mm because the heroine is very bookish and very, and sometimes people will screenshot that or they'll write to me and they'll say, Hey, this book is dedicated to me. And then we have a little geeky girl fist bump awkwardly because <laughs> we know that, that we have something in common. And so um, I just, even if there aren't that many Vickers daughters out there, I'm sure there are a lot of, girls who grew up feeling that they needed to live up to certain expectations and for one reason or another um, were not unable to, to live up to expectations because those are sort of unfair expectations. They found themselves being normal teenagers despite them 
and worried about how that was going to work out. And I, I, so I think that hopefully there's sort of a universality there that goes beyond just being a preacher's kid. The theme is, is there through different parts of the book as well, because Emma has a friend who is a client of her dressmaking shop who is pregnant uh, by a guy who skipped town and she doesn't know what to do about it. And Emma is determined to help her. So there's a little bit of a theme uh, through this particular book. And I, I hope it's through all of my books, but a little bit more overt in this one of women being able to take control of their own sexuality, of their own bodies and make decisions for themselves, even in a time when people assume that those sorts of decisions weren't available to women, or certainly they were more difficult to carry out. And, you know, we, we still are struggling with that. So I, uh, I really wanted to, to put that in there. So it's not just Emma, it's, it's lots of women who find themselves for one reason or another, sort of punished by society for something that's natural curiosity or natural ownership of their sexuality. So Emma was basically slut shamed. Uh, how how basically, does that? Yes, totally slut shamed. That's exactly what it was. So how does that? By her own um, dad. Yeah, I mean that that sounds like a very painful experience. And now she's stuck married to someone that she barely knows. How how does that? sort of affect her relationship with Ashbury? Well, at first, he she hasn't told him this because, you know, when somebody offers to marry within 15 minutes, there's really not amount of time to get acquainted. Um, and I think what way one way that in which it uh, affects their relationship from the beginning is that she knows she knows what's going on. She doesn't need to be tutored in what it means to have sex. She knows. She she understands um, what's going on, and she is ready to enjoy it uh, once they establish a connection. And he's sort of expecting her to be, you know, expecting the marital bed to be this sort of perfunctory experience, and it's a little bit pleasantly surprised once he figures out uh, what's going on. But and and she does tell him it's not a big secret that goes throughout the whole book. She she makes it clear. And I think one of uh, my favorite parts with within the book was writing his response to her slut shaming, which I don't want to go too far into describing the whole plot of the book. But he's furious about it basically, <laughs> and uh, and he he uh, is definitely. Um, on her side, so to speak, you know, she, she, um, he feels quite offended on her behalf and he feels the injustice of the situation. And so he is definitely not a flood shamer. Well, that I must... think is what we should all have in a partner. Yes, absolutely. But, and um, that, that's, uh, that's that's the way that you're sort of doing the the wish fulfillment for all of the readers who identify with your heroine is giving them the the sympathetic character to be her partner. Yes, and hopefully it's not just a wish for a lot of women today, but who knows at this point. Um, you know, hopefully uh, a lot of women uh, have very sympathetic partners uh, in this day and age, but there's still a social pressure or um, ideas of what women should and shouldn't do and how society should react. And um, having somebody who is willing to stand up against that on your behalf is, to my mind, a really uh, great thing to have in your life. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Tessa Dare, author of The Duchess Deal. Uh, so we, we've uh, we've talked about Emma and um, the sort of history with her body, but Ashbury has his own complicated relationship with his body because of his injuries. And uh, you've actually written a number of disabled characters in the Regency era. What were the cultural 
approaches and ideas about disability, particularly visible disability at the time? Well, this is post-war England. So I, I have to imagine that there were quite a, and a lot of the England lost a huge number of that generation of, of mm. men. But yes, the people who came back must have had a lot, great deal of them, some sort of visible uh, injury. Um, but in Ash's case, his his injuries are um, even more visible because they're on his face, his arm, and and it's uh, and it's burns, which are not just a part missing so much as uh, something that people are uncomfortable uh, sometimes um, confronting in real life and how to react to. Um, So there's sort of, I think, an awkwardness in almost every interaction he has specifically with somebody who does not know him, where it's something that both he and the person he meets will have to confront. And he's he would rather pull back from that rather than take the time to move past that with somebody new. And uh, so I think that that's, he, as he said, his body, I think he, he almost feels, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to put it, but as though he's at odds with his own body and that affects, everything that he's doing. And I, I did research different sorts of injuries and remedies and surgeries that were happening uh, in war at the time. I mean, mostly a great deal of amputations because mm. they did not understand infection as we do now. So it was safest before a wound became gangrenous to just sort of lop it off. And if it did become infected, you know, that really was the only, um, the only hope. And you just kind of hoped that it hadn't already spread. So, um, but there was a, uh, somebody who, an officer who was in the Navy and, uh, I believe the war of 1812, and he was similarly injured by a, the same kind of rocket that I wrote Ash being injured, uh, it's called a Congreve rocket, and they were very powerful, but you could almost impossible to aim, so they would turn back sometimes. And, and so he was similarly injured and lived for, was brought back to England, lived for a good year bedridden by these injuries, and then finally succumbed and died. So I, I kind of wrote Ash with that history, but instead of dying, he survived and was able to recover enough to um, go back to a, something resembling his previous life. How how do you write about these characters and the historical attitudes toward them? A very difficult time for medicine, for limitation and disability, uh, when you know that some of your readers are also going to be disabled and seeing themselves in those characters. Well, I think I hope that there's a sort of common experience, no matter, that's a lot, in large part the way that I write everything is assuming that people have not changed all that much in humanity. You know, we are, we are still the same sort of social beings that we were 200 years ago. And people in this uh, day and age did not invent sex. They did not invent fun. <laughs> um, and so, and we really, we didn't invent feminism either. So um, part of how I write in general is by um, just assuming that humans are humans that no matter what time that they're living in. So I try to write, read um, first person accounts as much as possible from the era from modern times. And if somebody tells me that I got it right in some way, that always makes me feel really good. I had a reader write and say that her mom had a great, she was burned over 80% of her body and that it was, it really reflected her own um, feelings. And then that she did. And later in life, uh, marry a partner who made her feel 
the same way that Ash came to feel. And so that was a really um, sort of relief <laughs> to read because you never know exactly how true and what rings true for one person with a disability is not going to ring true necessarily for another. So, sure. um, but it just, you know, to have that one person sort of validate the experience was, um, was a really lovely thing for me. Um, and there, that's been, that's been the case with a lot of elements that I've been through the years, not necessarily doing, having to do with disability, but various life experiences and, um, and, hearing from somebody who has lived through, for example, the loss of an infant. I wrote that into uh, another book and um, got some really wonderful feedback on that. So I just, you know, I do my, I do my best on this side. And then, um, and I hope that the readers on the other side will uh, let me know whether or not uh, I got it right. And sometimes people have written to tell me <laughs> that there were certain elements of a story that I didn't quite get right. For example, I wrote Death Heroine and, and I had some very lovely letters, but a lot of them mentioned that, boy, she's really good at, you know, almost in, uh, surprisingly and preternaturally good at lip reading. <laughs> so, you know, that was one, um, element that I probably should have, uh, been a little bit more realistic about and, um, and was completely glad to hear, uh, from readers who appreciated other, but let me know that that one was a little off. <laughs> So it sounds like you have this very intimate relationship with readers. You talk about getting all of this feedback. Is this on social media and email? How do you make yourself so available and how does that work for you? Does it take time from your writing? Well, I think in this um, day and age, we do receive a lot of reader feedback on social media. Also email, very, very, very rarely an actual letter shows up in the mailbox. Um, and I think a lot of romance writers receive intensely personal reader email or interaction. I, I do not believe at all that it's unique to me. Um, we write about very intensely personal experiences and issues and, um, a lot of readers will write and we also write very optimistic books. And so sometimes people are reading them at a time in their life that's very dark and feels hopeless. And so somebody who read a romance novel that lifted their spirits will sometimes write an author to talk about what their struggle was and how the book helped them through it. And so I, we receive some very, very uh, personal emails and, and interactions with readers. And I think that's always, it's, it's a wonderful part of the job. And in, in my opinion, it's very humbling and and wonderful to know that something that you created could be somebody's comfort or validation when they really needed it. And I know, I don't know a single author who wishes nobody wrote them <laughs> those hmm. sorts of, of letters or emails in, and sometimes they're, they're more difficult to respond to. For example, um, the person, the people who lost children. I mean, that's, that's just, how do you respond to that? And um, that took a while to sort of figure out how to to phrase it, how to uh, honor what they're saying. But in general, I, I think it just it comes with the job, and it's a wonderful part of the job that I don't think any of us would ever resent. So you've mentioned the kind of research that you do, looking at historical primary sources. What's your writing and research process like? Oh my, it's very tangled. <laughs> I'm not a good example of process because I, my process is like sort of a mess, but, uh, I, I try, I used to try to really start with a whole lot of research and I'm a librarian by, uh, trade before I became a writer. And so my problem with research is stopping <laughs> and not using all of it. I could just, uh, enjoy researching things for, forever and never get around to the actual writing. So 
after I've done some baseline research for a book, I try to just start writing and then let the story inform what the specific parts that I need to go back and learn more about. Um, my, I have a research uh, couple of bookshelf of books that I keep on hand, and I also borrow from libraries. I've interlibrary loaned books that came from the Library of Congress, which was really exciting. Um, I've gone to the rare books room at and at New York Public Library, gotten to sit in the reading room where they bring out the book from the deep storage <laughs> and let you look at it, which was also very exciting. And um, so I do, I do as much research as I can without interfering with the writing. Now, my writing process is uh, completely crazy. I will write a whole draft and then throw two-thirds of it away, like, routinely. It's, it's drives my editor crazy. And her name's Tessa Woodward. She's a saint. <laughs> That's all I can say. She puts up with so much for me, but she's also very supportive and smart. So I don't know what I'd do without her. So tell us more about that. You you write this, like a completed draft of an entire novel, and then you throw more than half of it away? Sometimes, yes. Um, one book, I completely changed the hero after turning in the first draft. I... Um, <laughs> And took out subplots. And I mean, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of writers are that way. Uh, if the book's not working, it's not working. I, I really feel because, like I said, I know somebody's going to out there is going to pick up a book, maybe my book, trusting that it's going to give them a certain experience, it's going to make them feel better when they've had a bad day. And for me, that puts a lot of, I, I take that as a lot of pressure and responsibility to really make the book the best that I can um, and not let them down. So I, I don't always turn in a, you know, it's not always a perfect book and some of my books are going to hit better for one person than for another, but I really want to do my best in my end to make sure that the book works, that the plot works, puts together, that the characters have the right dynamic. And I just never seem to get that right the first try. So Sometimes it takes two or three and not, not all, not every book would throw away two thirds. That's a little bit extreme, but I have done it. So can you drop any hints about future books in the series? I'm just, I'm going to love that Regency heroine Voltron image forever. <laughs> well, the next heroine up is Alexandra Mountbatten. She, in this, this is one of my favorite bits of research. This is something I picked up while I was at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich was that there was this woman, this is Victorian times, so I'm fudging a little bit with the time, but her job was to go to Greenwich and get the proper time on her timepiece and then take it around to businesses and homes of wealthy people to help them set their correct their time wow. to the correct time. So she literally sells the time. Um, and in, however, this doesn't pay all that well. <laughs> Kids are enough to scrape by, but Alexandra does have other interests that she would be uh, interested in pursuing. And so in the beginning of this book, it's called The Governess Game. She's going to become a governess in rather the same way that Emma becomes a duchess, just sort of unexpectedly and out of desperation. She agrees to uh, become a governess and to this uh, these two girls who have become the wards of, of course, an incorrigible rake who has no use for <laughs> two little kids in his life are completely cramping his style. And they are horrible children. <laughs> I mean, horribly, they're not horrible individuals, but they are horrible uh, charges for a governess to have. And that's going to be a lot of fun. My daughter is 12 and she is uh, serving as my consult on <laughs> how to make how to make these girls as uh, problematic as possible. Well, it sounds like a great deal of fun to write. Are you, are you giggling as you write it? Um, a little bit, yeah. I think I giggle as I write all my books. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I figure that I also read things aloud in my terrible English accents. I, I, you know, writing with people watching is probably, I've probably drawn a lot of, a lot of curious glances in Starbucks over the years. <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, mumbling to myself as I write. 
So, but I figure with laughing, I figure if it doesn't make me laugh, it's not going to have a hope of making anybody else laugh. And even if it makes me laugh, that's not a guarantee it will make somebody else laugh. So I'm always really, really glad if people tell me a book is funny because humor is so subjective and you, you never know if what makes you laugh is going to make other people laugh. So, um, so yeah, I try to make myself laugh because if I don't, who else is going to? I've been talking with Tessa Dare, and you can find her book, The Duchess Steel, in stores right now. Tessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about the bestseller that wasn't. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm David Handler, the author of The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us all about how an author tried to game the bestseller list. Hi, Rachel. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's very nice to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. And I'm very curious about this story because this is a thing that I think a lot of authors worry about is, you know, what if their hard work gets them onto the bestseller list and then someone manages to game the system? So tell us, tell us what happened. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not unheard of. It's something that has happened in the past. Um, but what happened in this situation is last week, um, there was a book that hit the advance, um, list, which is a list the New York Times sends out early to publishers and, um, other subscribers. And, it's um, a book called Handbook for Mortals. The Handbook for Mortals hit number one on the uh, the Times's YA hardcover list. And a couple authors in the YA community uh, saw this. They saw the advance list. And a few of them took to, well, what started out as a few, took to social media and were talking about this book. Um, just because it's highly unusual for a book that people haven't heard of to chart so high on the list. Um, and it was coming from a publisher that was new and also largely unheard of. It, it was coming, I should say unheard of, um, I think in traditional New York publishing circles. Mm -hmm. It was coming from um, a new publishing arm of a pop culture news website called Geek Nation. And um, so the authors that noticed the book and some sort of YA bloggers and some other people in the YA community um, just sort of started expressing their surprise and then I think started to feel like maybe something was awry with the book. And um, one author in particular sort of uh, led the charge um, and his name is Phil Stamper. Um, and so he started tweeting about it. And then he, along with some other people who were initially very vocal, they actually started contacting booksellers to ask them, you know, if they'd heard of the book and what they thought of it. And I mean, I should also say, the, the way people have gamed the New York Times bestseller list in the past is that they basically, um, the Times sort of for its print list, um, they work with a select number of booksellers on point of sale data. And it's a secret, you know, as to who those booksellers or which booksellers that um, actually report their numbers to the Times. Mm -hmm. And so if you know booksellers um, or if you know the bookstores that specifically report to the Times and you can place you know, large orders with those specific bookstores, you can basically, you know, you can superficially, um, should I say artificially, um, you know, get your book to chart on the times and basically, you know, get what look to be inflated sales. Um, and the times actually in order to, to ward against this, you know, um, they, they try to avoid it. They actually place a symbol next to books on the list if they've been ordered in large bulk orders right. um, to indicate, you know, that that's the situation. So these authors and others in the YA community, you know, really were kind of lighting up um, social media uh, last week. And this was sort of on Tuesday and then into uh, Wednesday. And then I think um, basically what happened is the – the Times took notice of the sort of the social media uproar and they wound up pulling the book from the list, which is pretty unusual. Pulling it all together, not just putting that symbol on it. Right. They pulled it all together. Wow. Um, and the Times actually issued a statement about the situation. So in a statement, um, a spokesperson for the Times said um, that basically after investigating what they called inconsistencies in the uh, reporting cycle, that they decided to... Um, 
They said that sales for Handbook for Mortals, this is a quote, sales for Handbook for Mortals do not meet our criteria for inclusion. And so they, they pulled it from the list. Wow. So um, that is, as you said, a very unusual move. Do you think a lot of that was because they were getting so much social media attention on this? Yeah. I mean, I think the social media attention certainly is what drew their attention to the situation. I mean, I think in general, they, um, you know, the Times doesn't want to have books on the list if they're not indeed bestsellers. And and I mean, I should add that, the, you know, the thinking with doing this sort of gaming the system, so to speak, is that, you know, if your book lands on the New York Times bestseller list, it list, it's arguably kind of one of the sort of best forms of publicity you can get. Sure. Um, because, you know, I mean, look, if it's already selling, you know, then it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's popular. And then people see that it's up there and more people want to get to it. So popularity begets popularity. But, um, you know, if you're able to, you know, as we say, game the system and get your book up there without having, you know, look, you know, lots of people buying it across the country on their own, then you're sort of able to get a ton of attention for it. I think, you know, you'll get press attention, people saying, oh, what is this book that nobody's heard of? Um, and you'll obviously get readers looking, you know, who look to that list and, you know, and then want to find out what's this book that I haven't heard of. And, and it's something that people start to talk about. So it's one of these things where it's, it's one of the best forms of publicity you can get. Um, and so that's obviously a reason why authors have done this in the past. And there are even sort of, there are firms that sort of specialize in, in doing this um, and in sort of helping an author, you know, for usually quite a bit of money, um, mm -hmm. you know, get that uh, placement. So this didn't affect the PW bestseller list, which is drawn from different data. That's correct. Um, so the PW bestseller lists are drawn from uh, using book scan numbers and the times doesn't use book scan. And just to be clear, so, BookScan relies also on point of sale data, meaning, you know, the, um, the exchange done at the store. But the Times uses just a select group of stores. And from that select group of stores, they then do their list. Um, and, and it's sort of a secret sauce that they use at the Times and people don't really, aren't supposed to know. Right. Um, I mean, one of the things that happened, um, in, with this story with Handbook for Mortals is that, you know, the, the booksellers that the YA, um, folks who were, who'd taken to Twitter were talking to, they, you know, they were reporting back on um, the conversations they'd had. And we talked to some booksellers as well. And what the booksellers were saying was that they'd received these highly unusual orders for this particular book. Um, because, you know, people called the store and said, are you a store that reports the New York Times? And then would place really large orders for, you know, event, so-called events, but didn't necessarily specify what those events were, you know, saying we have a a big signing or something like that. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's a really weird way, um, to get an order and the, the stores aren't supposed to tell, um, anybody who calls, you know, whether they report to the times or not. I mean, some of the booksellers that sort of I'd spoken to, I mean, they said they didn't actually know, you know, if they were a reporting store. Um, you know, I assume that's something that only kind of, maybe higher ups at the store might know or something like that. Right. But, um, but yeah, BookScan, um, in, in a lot of ways, BookScan offers a more accurate picture, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some might say than the times and that BookScan's pulling from a wider array of, of stores for that, for their point of sale data. But, you know, even with BookScan, you do have situations where there are certain books that can, um, that can sort of slide under the radar if, you know, it's, in cases like BookScan, if it's being bought from, you know, a lot of specialty stores that don't necessarily report to BookScan, or there have been cases in the past where maybe, you know, if a title's being bought um, widely from sort of specifically, you know, Christian retailers, sure. you know, that might be something where the Times isn't going to, sorry, the uh, BookScan might not get sort of the entirety of the picture. But generally, it's, it's said that BookScan captures about 80% of print sales in the country. So... What happens now? Do we just sort of move on? Is the Times going to try to make any effort to, to prevent this from happening again? We just sort of accept that this is one of those things that happens? I mean, I, I, yeah, I think it's one of those things that happens. I mean, I think, um, I think when it happens, um, I mean, the fact that the Times backtracked obviously sort of, I think, proves that they don't want, you know, books on there that, um, aren't actually bestsellers, that, right. you know? Um, and so I think it's just one of those situations where, 
you know, again, this has happened some a bit in the past. Um, and this was kind of a, a sort of classic example of how people do try to get on the list um, without necessarily being a bestseller. Um, yeah. And I think it's just, it, it's sort of, if anything, I think the story just shows sort of the passionate nature of the YA community. I mean, mm, absolutely. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's a little bit different. I, I guess it sort of extends maybe like many fan communities, you know, it's a community of fans as well as sort of creators, as well as, um, you know, in this case, it was, you know, sort of a cross section of people who work in the industry. Um, and I think, you know, you'll see people who maybe have varying ties to sort of working in the industry, you know, who are a blogger and maybe work at a publishing house or, you know, or an author, but who then maybe, you know, they write, um, you know, they ghost write or something like that. So, um, yeah, it was this sort of ragtag group of folks who, you know, said they recognized an imposter and then really went about sort of unmasking the, the, the situation. So I think really it speaks more to that. And I do mm. think, you know, if there was another situation like this to crop up again, I mean, I think, I kind of think the same thing would happen. You know, if, if the times was really, I think the speed at which this happened is owed to the fact that it happened so quickly over social media, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that speaks to sort of the fan nature of the community. You know, I don't know, I don't know if it had happened with a book sort of that topped, I don't know, the hardcover fiction list, I think people would be asking questions. But, you know, I, I wonder if it would have been the kind of same swift reaction of people taking to Twitter. Um, you know, it's such that's such a wider cross section, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I wonder if, if maybe it would have been something that would have taken more time. I don't know. Hopefully the Times will retain the integrity of its list because I know that is something that a lot of authors depend on. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was a backlash saying that, you know, from the authors, I think on social media, the the thing that upsets people the most is that, you know, everybody who writes books sort of dreams of getting on that list and to think somebody could get on that list without, you know, deserving to, um, and actually having the sales to, to do it, um, certainly upsets people. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rachel. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Sarah Ockwell-Smith, author of Gentle Discipline, Using Emotional Connection, Not Punishment, to Raise Confident, Capable Kids. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 